Well, as you've been hearing in the news, three uh, Surrey residents, those are among six people. They have all been accused in various crimes. This is part of a years-long investigation. It was done by the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit of BC. I think to put this in perspective, this is a group that was getting into production of fentanyl. They're trafficking in fentanyl. We all know the, the impact fentanyl is having on British Columbia and our communities. And it was a group that was looking to expand. So I think one of the priorities for law enforcement always as we speak to trying to interdict with groups before they become larger and more well-established. So I think for both those reasons, uh, I would still count it as a significant success. So that is Duncan Pound, Super Operations Manager, Superintendent Duncan Pound, Operations Manager with the CFSEU, talking about the fact that 27 charges have been laid against the six people. Let's bring in Doug Spencer, gang expert, retired from the Vancouver Police Department. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Joe. How significant do you think this is? Well, it's a, a, quite a sum of drugs, lots of potential overdoses there. And you're taking out uh, some kind of up there players, right? So um, you, you just got to keep trying. You know, make, don't allow them to be organized and grow and recruit young kids from the street, right? And when we talk about the amount of fentanyl that was in this particular bust, like you said, the the potential for a lot of overdoses from that. Uh, But uh, Duncan Pound also talked about that this was a a gang, and again, it's the Brothers Keepers gang that was singled out, saying this is a gang that is not only accused now of trafficking, but also well into the production of this as well. Is that different? No, you know, they've, there's been lots of gangs. They get the the drugs needed to make a batch, right? They get connected to whoever has the uh, the precursors for whatever, and they're off and running. It's like a market, right? I talked to a, a DEA investigator at a police conference a couple of years ago, and he said they found fentanyl in absolutely every drug available on the street now. So they're not putting the drugs in there, the fentanyl in those drugs to be nice uh, drug dealers. They want you addicted. It's simple. It's uh, marketing, right? Right. And and so not different then, I guess, from what we've we've seen in other gangs. But when we talk about the fact that that six people, members of this gang, are now facing charges, I understand, though, there are uh, some that they're still looking for at this point. How much of a dent does that put into a gang like the Brothers Keepers? Well, it, it makes them disorganized, right? Um, and it, it weakens their position. But, you know, at the same time, there's gonna, it's going to open up uh, markets for other gang members to come in there and vie for those addicts. So, you know, you win on one side, then now you're dealing with a new group that's trying to move in. And, and that's when the gunfire starts between these groups to try and move in and take over, right? So oh, kind of a balancing act, with, you know, and given the way the courts are now, they're so lax in sentencing and stuff, and they don't hold any of these guys in jail that get caught with guns. It's a mind blow to me. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's going to be a holistic approach to stop this 
and, you know, including educating kids, the potential recruits. That's what we do at Odd Squad. We tell them what's at the end of the road for them. Right. So even in this case, then, while I think they're, they're still looking for at least two of the people who have been charged, uh, the others, uh, according to the news release put out by uh, this, uh, the gang unit, uh, saying that they have been charged and they are remain in custody, at least for now. Uh, any confidence that they will face any kind of jail time or significant punishment for this? Well, you would hope so. You know, that's a significant amount of drugs. And like I said, the potential overdose victims, it's high. You're talking in the hundreds. So, you know, the the judge just got to realize that there's minimum sentences and maximum sentences. Maximum sentences are for that amount of drugs. You know, if you got caught with that amount of fentanyl in the States, you'd be bye-bye for 20 years. Hmm. Right up here, it's like 20 days. It's a joke. And I think that's what we're seeing, too, a certain level of frustration from the public. And when you hear about this and there's a big, uh, a, a big release and uh, they're, they're telling us about all of the arrests made, I think that that's exactly it. If the public then doesn't see a punishment that fits the crime, there's the kind of the question of, well, what's the point? Yeah, and it's not just the, the public. It's these kids selling drugs. If they don't go to jail... If there's no consequence for them carrying around a firearm to traffic drugs and shooting people, what's to stop them, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to keep doing it. It's, it's pretty simple, right, thinking. So, um, yeah, you, you just got to get to these kids really early. We, I talk to kids as early as grade five because there's kids in elementary schools that are trafficking drugs. That's how bad it is. So, and and what's a scenario like that then? As far as are are gang members actually recruiting kids that young? Oh yeah, it, it, and they do it. You know, the the young kid that got shot. I think he was twelve or thirteen out in Surrey last year. Um, they're aware of the age of these kids, right? They can give them a firearm or drugs and they can carry it around for them if the police catch them this kid's too young to charge right in the criminal code so they're not stupid right they they want to distance themselves from potential charges and going to jail and stuff that's why they recruit these young kids they take all the chances for them right and they this the brothers keepers they're international they're all over canada Right. You see them sitting at a Toronto Raptors basketball game courtside. Right. Hmm. So in this case, then, with six people charged and you, you kind of touched on this, is it a case of there will be other members of the Brothers Keepers that will try and move up and take those positions or other gangs, rival gangs that will try and take over that territory? Well, yeah, it's it could be both. Right. It's like time to pull pull in the farm club. So the, the younger members are going to have to step up and fill that void while these guys go to jail. Or if they're not good enough at it and not strong enough and have that reputation that these other guys had, these other gangs will move in and take over their drug line. Right. 
And and looking at the ages of the people that have been charged in this case, it go they go every anywhere from twenty one. Uh, a couple of them are twenty one. A couple are twenty nine. Uh, and then there's a forty five year old woman as well. Uh, are you surprised at all by that age range? Um, well, it's a, a pretty good uh, bust to get members that old because it's not their first kick at the can. They've been around doing this for a number of years. They started out, a lot of those brothers keepers, uh, I was checking them at the Surrey Skytrain when they're like 14 and 15 selling drugs, right? So they've earned their reputation. They've moved up the little ladder. And now that, you know, to be caught with that amount of drugs, you're not a street-level person. You're like a mid-level or high-level, right? So... You know, the, the judges have to consider that when they sentence these guys. Which is uh, interesting, too, because that person, the, the 45-year-old female from Surrey who uh, is facing charges as well, appears to be the only one who was arrested but has also been released from custody. The others seem to be are all being held in custody. Yeah, well, you know, they, they use all sorts of people to facil- facilitate their drug rings and their drug lines, right? They have, usually quite often they'll have women carry the drugs because uh, male police officers are far less likely to search a female than a male. Just, it's common sense, right? So, um, yeah, you know, we back in the day we had the, the Bacon Brothers a mom was in the kitchen when they're talking about drug deals, they're involved. They're, they're in on what their kids are up to. You know, they, they don't have to worry about working overtime to pay for their kids' new car and stuff. It's, it's like a, a burden off them. So they'll allow them to do it, right? And they don't realize the consequence until they're attending their son's funeral. And, and one other question with the individuals that uh, are facing charges, but uh, the the unit saying they've not been able to locate them, so they've issued warrants for their arrests. What do you, in your experience, what do the members of these gangs, they now know that there are warrants for their arrest, they're facing these charges, where do they go? Yeah, they, they can disappear quite easily. They they go down to the States. They were chasing around a guy down there that was wanted for murder up here. They found him in uh, down in the county in California, again, dealing drugs with guys down there. So they have associations all over, right? The, the UN gang had associations in Calgary. So, like, if you're wanted, you just skip town for a little bit. I low, wait till things calm down, and then when you've got all your ducks in the row, you turn yourself in if that's what you're going to do, right? Right. All right. Well, Doug, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much. We'll be waiting to see what else happens with this case, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. You're more than welcome. And uh, I ask parents to reach out to Odd Squad. We would love to come and talk to your schools and community groups and uh, uh, give you some ammunition to help your kids away from that lifestyle. 
Right now, though, talking about a warning about the 911 system in this province. And earlier today, the emergency communication professionals of BC, that's a local of CUPE, put out a news release saying that the system is at risk of catastrophic failure without immediate funding relief from local governments. We've been working hard with our employer to advocate to municipalities to increase funding. However, that action hasn't come through. Uh, Ecom commissioned its own report indicating significant understaffing and under-resourcing, almost indicating that needs to double the number of staff that we have on the floor. The Ecom funding model is complicated, but I'll make it super easy for you. Police and fire departments, when you uh, when you uh, call 911, you're asking for Vancouver Police, and they're the ones that fund uh, Ecom. There are 37 different municipalities that we are working with, and that complicated funding structure and that reactionary funding model is not uh, able to keep up and react to the realities uh, that we're facing today. So that was Donald Grant Grant with QP8911. He was speaking on Mornings with Simi earlier today. Let's bring in Jasmine Bradley, Executive Director of Communications and Public Affairs at Ecom 911. Jasmine, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. How do you respond to that message put out by the union saying staffing levels have to double and if these concerns aren't dealt with, there could be catastrophic failures? We share the same concerns as the union, and yes, ECOM is understaffed and underfunded, particularly in terms of police call taking and dispatch. But since it's the same people answering 911 calls and police emergency and non emergency calls, the impact of us not being adequately resourced is felt across all areas of our operations. And as a result, our people are suffering, and there is a genuine risk to public safety. You mentioned there's something that, that's come up before, especially when we're talking about police calls, both emergency and non-emergency. Why are dispatchers or call takers at ECOM, why are they also in charge or tasked with taking non-emergency calls? So the way that the current model is set, um, ECOM call takers answer both emergency calls and non-emergency calls. And so the challenge that we have is that when we see higher call volumes coming through on the 911 lines, like we have been seeing, we need to make sure that our staff are prioritizing those urgent requests for help. Because of our the fact that we are understaffed on the police um, call-taking side, what that means is then when our call takers are all focused on the 911 call answer piece, we're seeing extended wait times on the non-emergency side. Um, and so that's just the way that the current model is set up, and, and that's the challenges that we're seeing in terms of that, um, that under-resourcing piece. Would it make a difference if there was a, di- a change to that setup in that non-emergency calls didn't come through, didn't come to ECOM? Um, we're exploring a whole bunch of different options with our police partners. Um, we're looking at a number of different ways of approaching the non-emergency side of the business. One thing is looking at different ways of, of triaging those calls before they even hit an e-com call taker. So we know that approximately 40% of the non-emergency calls that do come through to e-com via the 10-digit line actually need to be um, redirected elsewhere. So if there's a way that we can work with our police partners um, to to look at different ways of um, funneling those calls through to us, that would be helpful. Online reporting and working with our partners to really promote that as an avenue for people to use, that's really helpful as well. Um, so we're looking at a number of different options. 
Uh, I wanted to play for you one other uh, clip from Donald Grant. Uh, again, he's uh, with the union and he spoke on Mornings with Simi. He was describing what it's like for workers. And he says this is the scenario workers are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Just to give you an example of what a, a 911 call taker will be experiencing, a sign will pop up on their phone. It'll say 911 queue. They're supposed to answer that call by saying 911 duty police fire ambulance. Then after they've done that call, it'll pop up, say Vancouver emergency. They have to answer that call, Vancouver police. And these calls are coming in back to back for a full 12 hour shift. And frequently they can't even get up to go to the bathroom. They're having to monitor their water intake to make sure that they're able to stay in their seats to be able to answer as many calls as possible. And this has been going on for months and months now. It doesn't sound great that somebody has to limit their water intake because they know they won't get a bathroom break. It's unacceptable. Simply put, it's absolutely unacceptable. Um, Our people are suffering. And through the very nature of the work that they do, our, our staff are here to help people. And it's that desire to help that really drives Um, people missing their breaks, working too much overtime. And it's not just, you know, a desire to help the public, but it's also a desire to help their colleagues who are being stretched too thin. And so, you know, we do need the funding. We do need the resources and able to help our people provide the level of service that the public deserves and support our partners in the best way possible. Uh, the union was saying, though, even if the the staff numbers were doubled and, and people were brought on, it could still take months, if not years, to get up to the complement needed to fix the problems. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I mean, it's, it's um, a demanding job to start with, for sure. And it takes a certain type of person. This work isn't for everybody. It's, it's, it's hard work. Um, and so finding the right person um, to hire. So from that very first step with recruitment, finding the right people, that's a challenge. We know the, the labor market right now is challenging for, for most organizations. And then when we bring the people in, the training, that all takes time. The mentoring, working with other more experienced call takers to get our new recruits up to speed, that all takes time. So absolutely, it's, it's not a quick fix. Um, even once we secure the funding, being able to train up our staff, it does take time. So what is the, is there a, a short-term solution here? Because we've been hearing from the province that, yes, more dispatchers and more call takers are being trained and those positions are being filled, but it doesn't sound like anything is going to be changing anytime soon. It actually sounds like things are likely going to get worse. So um, unlike the ambulance service, ECOM is not actually funded by the provincial government. So for police call taking and dispatch, we're funded directly through the 33 police agencies and respective municipalities that we provide that service for. So we are having those conversations with our police and municipal um, funders. They're aware of our concerns. They know our funding requests. Um, and we've been having these conversations since the start of 2020, but then, as we all know, the pandemic hit, and uh, police and municipal budgets have been stretched thin as well. So it's not an easy challenge to solve, um, but it's an important one because public safety is at risk. So you need those 33 partners, and I take it the funding is based on population, but you need those partners to, to put more money into it. 
yes, we do. At the end of the day, we need more funding. We need more staff. Um, the costs related to police call taking and dispatch are based on a complex formula, but it does take into consideration the number of radio channels that a particular agency needs, the volume of calls, both on emergency and non-emergency, um, and many other factors such as the complexity of calls and even population changes. All right, Jasmine, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and hope to talk to you again soon, hopefully with some better news. But thanks so much for today. Thanks very much, Jill. We have been talking a fair amount about property crime, about the increase in these types of crimes, vandalism, particularly in the downtown core of Vancouver and the West End. Well, an arrest has been made, an arrest of a suspect who allegedly went on a window smashing spree yesterday. This was a window smash that caused thousands of dollars in property damage. And joining us to talk more about how this unfolded is Sergeant Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department. Sergeant, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. My pleasure. Uh, So what happened and what led to this arrest? Yeah, so um, the a spike in, in mischief, specifically glass smashes to businesses in the downtown core has been a really big concern, not only for the police, but for people who uh, live and work in the downtown core for a number of months. So um, we at the Vancouver Police Department have been paying special attention to this, pro- uh, this problem, and we've uh, deployed extra uh, resources in the neighbourhood to try to solve it. Yesterday afternoon, uh, our officers did arrest a man uh, after a window was smashed at a storefront on Davie Street. It was actually the second time we had arrested him that day. Uh, our officers dealt with him uh, several hours earlier after he allegedly uh, threw a bottle at a window near uh, Robson and Butte Street. Uh, we're also looking at him as possibly being a suspect in a, in a third mischief that uh, occurred yesterday uh, at a bus shelter in the downtown core that had its, uh, its glass, glass smashed. So at this point, we have a suspect in custody. Uh, We're still collecting evidence for all of those cases, and we're looking at the possibility that he may be connected to a number of other mischiefs that have occurred in the downtown core. But we still have a lot of work to do because um, our job is to collect evidence and shore up up the evidence to to make sure that we've uh, completed our investigations thoroughly. Uh, So if this individual had already been arrested on the same day after allegedly breaking a window at that business you mentioned at Robson and Butte, why was he back out there smashing, allegedly smashing other windows? Sure. So um, it's it's quite common for uh, a, a person who has uh, committed a what's considered to be a uh, in one instance a fairly low level property crime uh, not to be held in custody. It's actually quite rare that somebody would be uh, held in custody for an offense like that. So uh, when this man was arrested earlier in the day, uh, he was released from custody. Um, pending a, a, a future court appearance. Uh, unfortunately, um, the arrest that occurred earlier in the day did not prevent him from allegedly committing another crime, and our officers uh, were forced to deal with him again a few hours later. As a result of that second encounter in the same day, he was taken to the jail, and he is currently uh, sitting in jail awaiting to uh, appear in court. So he was held then. There was enough to warrant holding him in custody after the second arrest. Certainly. So uh, the law. So as I say, um, for uh, 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 what's considered to be um, uh, a mischief under five thousand dollars, a fairly low-level property crime, it would be perfectly uh, normal for 
uh, a suspect to be released in a case where it's one incident. However, um, two incidents in one day, we can certainly have the authority and the uh, the ability to articulate holding this person in custody to see a judge because uh, there's a concern that there's going to be a continuation or a repetition of the offense. We're not going to release this guy uh, another time, uh, a, a third time or a second time in the day with the risk that he could commit more crimes. Therefore, he was taken to jail. He's currently in jail and uh, he's awaiting to see a judge. Uh, but at, at the first arrest then, because to now say that uh, the this 50-year-old suspect, uh, police are investigating all possible links to other unsolved mischiefs, yeah. w- would that not have been part of the first arrest to see, hey, we've arrested somebody who uh, a bystander says they just saw this person break this window? Would they not have looked at his past then or uncovered possible links at that point that needed to be investigated? So there's a lot of things that do need to be considered when our officers are dealing with a suspect. And um, we he certainly is a suspect in, in a number of other uh, cases in the downtown core. However, we're continuing to investigate those cases now. Um, you have to understand that um, a lot of we're seeing uh, on average 11 uh, reports from people, from business owners in the downtown core every week from people who are reporting having their storefront windows smashed. It's a huge problem. A lot of these crimes are occurring uh, very early in the morning. A lot of the crimes aren't being reported reported to us immediately. They're re- being reported uh, sometimes several hours later when somebody shows up to work uh, and discovers that a window's been smashed or long after a suspect has left the scene. So um, it's our job to, uh, after the fact, try to collect as much evidence as possible uh, to identify a suspect. So in this case, we think that this person may be responsible for other crimes that have not yet been solved. Uh, we're looking at him for in, in connection with, with some other crimes. However, that doesn't stop us from looking at other suspects who may be involved because we know that there are, uh, certainly this man is not the only person who's doing this. Uh, we believe there are a number of people who have, for one reason or another, uh, committed a number of mischiefs in the downtown core, and that's reflected in the uh, not just the st- statistics, the reports that we're seeing uh, to the police, but it's being reflected in those cases that aren't being reported to the police, the cases that we're seeing people talk about uh, on social media, people who are calling your show, uh, people who are talking to their friends and the neighbor and their neighbors. So uh, we certainly have, well, this is a, a step in the right direction. We We have a lot more work to do to solve this problem. Uh, and when you say 11 por- reports a week from businesses that have had their storefront windows smashed, that's the ones reported. Realistically, what do you think that number, how high could that number be? You know, we know these cases are, are vastly underreported. And the reason why I can say that with, with certainty is because of all of the people that we talk to on a regular basis, people that you talk to on a regular basis, people who are going to social media, uh, who are telling us about their experiences and have chosen for one reason or another not to report the incidents to police. number of reasons why they're, they may choose not to do it, but we know for a fact that it's hugely underreported. Um, it would be pure speculation for me to suggest what the actual number is. All right, Sergeant Addison, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate yeah. it. My, my pleasure. Anytime.
Thanks for being with us on this rather rainy Thursday afternoon. We're going to talk about a new interactive map. It was put out earlier today by the BC Centre for Disease Control, and it takes a look at radon levels in various parts of the province. And joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Cheryl Young, Senior Public Health and Preventative Medicine Resident of Environmental Health at the BC CDC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. Before we get into the map and how people can use that, can you explain a little bit more about radon and the risks and why we should be aware of that? Sure. Radon is this naturally occurring radioactive gas. It comes from the ground, and if it seeps into your home and accumulates at a high enough level and you're exposed to it for a long enough time, it increases your risk of lung cancer. And, and it sounds like, so the, you wouldn't know, it's not like you would just walk into your house and know, uh-oh, there's higher levels of radon in here today. No, uh, you can't smell it, you can't see it, you can't taste it. The only way for you to know is by testing for it. And even if you walk into a home with very high levels of radon, you don't feel it either, because the health effects from it is long-term. It's many years of breathing in high lo- uh, levels of radon that will increase your risk of lung cancer. So how did the BC Centre for Disease Control go about testing or figuring out where there are higher levels of radon in the province? Mm -hmm. So our map uses readings from across the province. There are about 11,000 readings we've collected over the years from homes in BC. And we use these readings to estimate how much radon is in the homes in the communities that you live in. Um, And so you can see from the municipality level all the way up to the health authority level, uh, the estimated amount of radon in your area. And and I should have asked this, sorry, first off, that it comes from, or from what I understand, that it it comes from the ground or it comes from the differences when we're talking about the differences in soil and rock. And that's why we see the different levels, is it? Exactly. So it comes from the soil and rocks as a natural gas that uh, comes from the ground as it decays. And so we do see that because of these geological factors, the makeup of the soil in the ground um, in different parts of BC, that we will have different levels. So we see higher levels in northern and interior parts of BC and typically lower levels in Vancouver area. But again, there's no real way to know how much radon is in your home without testing for it. And can people test? I know people can now go to this map and look at it. But if somebody sees maybe on the map that they're in a high level area, can they then test in their homes themselves? Absolutely. So testing nowadays can be very simple. Uh, There are do-it-yourself kits even that you can buy at the home improvement stores or online at BC Lung. They're about $30. And you can do it yourself by placing it in the lowest level of your home that you spend the uh, longest amount of time. Uh, And you can leave it there for 90 days to get the most accurate reading. And I think you may have touched on this, but while you can't smell it or have any way of just knowing it's in your home or you're being exposed to it without testing, are there health effects? I know you mentioned there's the long-term health effects and the increased risk of lung cancer, but are there any more immediate health effects or symptoms that are apparent if somebody has been exposed? Yeah, radon is one of those things that there's no way to know about it unless you test for it because there's no immediate health effects. It's the radon gas that if it accumulates in your lungs uh, for a long enough time, 
it slowly decays and causes that DNA damage for uh, many years down the line. All right. So let's talk a bit more about the map. Where can people find it if they want to take a look and kind of check out their part of the province? You can go to bccdc.ca slash radon. And on that webpage, you'll find a ton more information about radon, how to test for it, what to do if you do find that there's a high level of radon in your home and the map. And so if somebody then, I'm looking at the map right now and it's color-coded throughout the province. So I suppose the good news is that the region where we are, Metro Vancouver and Fraser Valley, it's light green. So that's right above the insufficient data. It's the zero to 100. But then as we get kind of further east and further north, that's where we see the bigger levels. So say somebody is in Revelstoke or Cranbrook where the map is red, which is showing 600 plus, what should they do? So we highly encourage people who live in these regions, uh, in the interior and in the northern regions of BC, to test their home for radon. And um, that is because of these geological factors that put them more at risk for radon exposure. And yes, luckily, uh, here in the Lower Mainland, we uh, generally do see lower levels of radon. However, there really is no way to know how much radon is in your home without testing for it. Uh, Radon levels can vary from home to home, even in the same neighborhood. Plus, for people who smoke, even exposure to low levels of radon can increase their lung cancer risk by even tenfold. And because of the kind of compounding, is it the damage that smoking can do in addition to the damage that radon can do? Yeah, so radon and smoking, they interact in such a way that they further increase that risk of lung cancer. Uh, If somebody does the testing then and realizes that, yes, their home, there are high levels, uh, aside from moving somewhere else, what can you do then to combat if you find out you do have higher levels of this gas in your house? So there are some simple solutions. There are ways that you can seal the cracks in your basement uh, uh, because that's how radon seeps in. It's through the cracks in your foundation of your home uh, that are touching the ground. And so you can seal those cracks. Uh, But if you're finding really high levels of radon, we tend to require a little bit more than that. And that would require installation of uh, what's called a depressurization system, which is a home improvement system to prevent the radon from entering and, and accumulating in the home in the first place. So that's that's good news because I would hate for somebody to hear this and to go to the map and find that they are being exposed and then not have solutions. So it does sound like there are things and people could take some pretty immediate steps. Absolutely. Radon causes deaths in Canada every year, but the good thing is that they're completely preventable. And so we really encourage British Columbians to check out this map, test their home, and if there's a problem, they can fix it. Is it more so than ground-level units, or if somebody, say, is, is living on the fourth floor or, say, on a higher floor, do they need to be as concerned? Yeah, so if you live in a floor that's uh, higher, then there really is very, very little concern. Because radon gas, it enters from the ground and it tends to stay in these lower levels. So it tends to stay in the basement and in the ground floor. And then would it be a safe kind of assumption that older homes, maybe homes that have cracks or, or not as good insulation as maybe homes that have been built with updated building codes, are they more susceptible to this and to letting that gas in? So it really depends on how the home is built, old or new. So a home where there are uh, gaps in the foundation, um, uh, old or new, the radon can enter. But in a lot of 
newer homes, uh, they're actually built to be sealed very well. And so if there are some gaps where radon enters, uh, the home ends up trapping the radon. And so old homes, new homes, both can be susceptible to high levels of radon. All right. And you mentioned, too, just to reiterate, too, you talked about the testing. Do you need to leave the testing kit for 90 days to get that true sense of whether or not you have a problem? You do. And so there's two types of testing kits, short-term kits and long-term kits. And if you're getting an initial reading in your home, we recommend a long-term kit. And that is the kind that you leave in your home for 90 days. And the reason is because you need that long reading to get a more accurate sense of radon, since radon levels can fluctuate from day to day. All right. Well, good advice. And I know there will be a lot of people checking out the interactive map and especially looking at their neighborhoods. Dr. Young, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.